So our scripture reading will be from John chapter 7, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because, the, because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those he believed, who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said, uh, who said to them, Why do you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? 
Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man first without giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you for your word. And now as we take a few moments to reflect on what we have just read here, as we meditate on it and ponder these things, God, may you speak to us through it. We ask that you would pour out your spirit um, into us, your people, so that we would be able to see, hear, and understand what your word says to us this morning. We ask that you do this in Christ's mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. So this passage, uh, remind ourselves of the context of, of John chapter 7. John chapter 7, all the way through to John chapter 8, is all centered around one event in Jerusalem. It's centered around uh, the Feast of Booths. Notice back in chapter 7, verse 2, it's the Feast of Booths was at hand. And last week I, I said chapter 7 can kind of be broken up, uh, divided around this Feast of Booths. There's the pre-feast, um, then there's the mid-feast, and then there's the post-feast. Pre-feast was when Jesus was still, as we saw last week, the first 13 verses, where Jesus was still back up in Galilee. He was still up in Nazareth with his brothers and his family. And they had a conversation. They were encouraging him, go, why don't you go down there? And we found that they were mocking him. And he says, no, my time is not, uh, my time has not come for me to go down there. You can go down there, but my time has not come. But as we saw at the beginning of this, when we, this passage that we read today begins mid-feast. Notice it says in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus did go up to Jerusalem. So he kind of snuck up there quietly and privately and not publicly. And then notice on verse 37, we see the end of this eight-day feast called the Feast of Booths. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out where he talks about coming to him to drink from living water. And we see some of the elements of this feast continue after uh, all the way through into John chapter 8. We're going to talk a little bit more about this feast, uh, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 8. Um, but we're going to be looking today at the interactions once Jesus does go to Jerusalem for this feast. So this is a period of several days that it's happening here. And this passage that we just read is not really conducive to a real nice, cohesive sermon. <laughs> I was trying to find what's the, what are the three great preaching points in this passage. Uh, it's not because it's a whole bunch of little vignettes. And it's one conversation here with the Jews. And then it switches to the crowd. And then there's an accusation here. And then there's some conversations where Jesus isn't even around. Um, and so having to try to find and make sense of this whole passage uh, was a bit of a challenge. But I do think if, uh, if I was to discern like one main theme here... It's questions about Jesus' identity as the Messiah or the Christ or the anointed one. Messiah and Christ would be an Old Testament um, 
pr prophecies about this figure that is going to come that's anointed by God. He's going to be the anointed servant of the Lord. And so the Hebrew phrase for that, a term for that is Messiah. And the Greek translation of that would be Christos, is where we get Christ. And it figures very prominently in this chapter. And so I think that if we could discern one main theme, it would be this. Questions about Jesus' identity as Messiah. And so let's look at three things that this uh, questions about Jesus' identity as Messiah. Um, three ways that this manifests itself in this passage. And first is uh, this. Jesus' identity as Messiah is seen in his authoritative teaching. This is kind of the beginning section here, verses 14 through 25. So Jesus does eventually go up to this feast. He sneaks into the temple precincts and he starts teaching. About the middle of the feast, he goes up to the temple and begins teaching, verse 14. And it's the Jews, remember the Jews are the religious authorities there. He's not referring to ethnicity here. Uh, primarily, this he's talking about those who have religious authorities over, uh, over Israel at this time. And when they hear that Jesus is teaching, they're marveling at what he says. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The, the Greek, therefore, has learning is uh, literally knows his letters. How is it this man knows his letters? Uh, which is a way of speaking about uh, being educated in the law, the very words of God. It's uh, very reminiscent to um, a passage in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John, the author of this gospel, are uh, speaking and they're debating with the, the rulers in the synagogue there. And they, one of the criticisms that they have of them is that they are unlettered or uneducated is how it's usually translated. How is, how is it that they're able to say such things when they haven't been trained in all of the rabbinic law like we have? And then they realized, oh, he, they have been with Jesus, who knows his letters. So Jesus knows his letters, and their shock and astonishment is very reminiscent of the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. As Jesus wraps up the sermon in uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, verse 28, it says, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So the scribal tradition in that day was you would go to the rabbinical school from you know, a young child on, and you would go and study the law, and then you would study all of the other uh, commenters on the law. And well, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, but Rabbi so-and-so said this, but Rabbi so-and-so said this part. And then Rabbi so-and-so said this to Rabbi so-and-so. And then they were experts in figuring out case law, I guess you could say. So they were experts at that, and that was the source of their teaching. Well, it, it's kind of like, what was it uh, Harry Truman said about an economist, you know? All of the economists, he goes, I'm looking for a two-handed economist. You know, because uh, one economist would say, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, he's like, I want a two-handed economist. I think the people were crying out, uh, give me non-rabbinical teaching. You're just quoting here and quoting here and quoting here. 
Jesus' teaching was radically different because he taught as one who had authority. He didn't need to cite the rabbis. So they were very, uh, they marveled at his teaching here. Jesus was a very exceptional teacher because he taught as one who had authority. And Jesus explains, he answers to them, and he explains where this comes from, verse 16. Well, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus' teaching with authority is authoritative because his teaching comes from God himself. Which is the end of the line when it comes to authority, right? You know, there's an appeal to authority. Well, what, what's the authority behind what you're saying? And, well, then you appeal to something else and well, something else. So like for, uh, it's maybe not a great illustration, um, but when it comes to what's the highest authority in our country, for instance, in terms of law? It's the Constitution of the United States. Well, what if there's a question about uh, interpreting it? That authority rides with the Supreme Court. So you might have lower court decisions, and then you make an appeal to the highest authority, highest authority, and then when the Supreme Court issues a decision and you don't like that decision, where do you go? There's no other authority to which you can appeal to, right? There's, there comes a point where an authority runs out and it's at the end of the line. But what about the teaching that comes from God? There's, that's it. We're talking God here. You can't go beyond God. He's the highest authority. There's a passage in, in Hebrews where, it, where the Lord swears an oath by himself, citing about the oath that he makes in the Old Testament. And, and it's like, wait, can you swear an oath by yourself? Well, we can't. Uh, but God goes, well, to whom else can I appeal? <laughs> so if I'm, going to swear, if I'm going to swear a promise to you, it's got to be on this highest, most, author most authoritative thing, and that's me. So Jesus is saying, that's, I have, my teaching is authoritative because it comes from God. You're, wanting to, you're marveling at my teaching? My teaching comes from him who sent me. And then notice the principle here. He says, he's contrasting those who are seeking their own glory and those who are seeking God's glory. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. He's laying that principle down right there. And there's a principle there. Yes, yes, if you're going to speak on your own authority, at, at least a fundamental level, you're seeking your own, own glory. This is not my own. I've heard this in many other places. There's a sickness in the church in the United States today, perhaps all over the world. There's a sickness in the church where there's pastors or preachers or teachers who are teaching their own authority. They preach themselves. They're preaching their experiences or their interactions with the divine or other ways that they would say it. They're not just teaching the authoritative word that the Lord God has given us in the scriptures. They preach themselves, their experiences, the ideas that they've had in books that they've read or conferences they go to. And that's a, that's a sickness in the church today, but it's not 
unique to just us today. It happened in Paul's day. It happened in the early church. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, says these words. He goes, we preach not ourselves. And in the larger context, you see, oh, there were others that preached themselves. He goes, we preach not ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord for your sake. So Jesus is establishing this principle. I am, my whole mission is to seek the glory of him who sent me. And I preach his word. So how can we know if it's authoritative? Verse 17, this takes us back a little bit. If anyone's will, Jesus says, is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So in, in another way of saying this is that there's, there's a way in which you will question my authority and it's because of the nature of the source of I'm getting this teaching from, it's coming from God. If you are questioning the authority of what I'm saying, it's because your will is not in alignment with God's. That's what Jesus is saying. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he'll know that my teaching is authoritative. So our will must be in conformity with God's will. And this is where there's a little bit of a problem. Jesus is not explaining this here, but elsewhere in John's gospel, you get a picture here that our wills are by our sinful natures and unregenerate self. Our wills are in bondage to sin. And so we need, uh, our, our wills are, we are by nature children of wrath. Indeed, our, our hearts do not, are not inclined to doing, uh, to doing God's will. We need to have uh, a regeneration by the Spirit of God. And in doing so, we see the riches of, of his word. Back to the Apostle Paul, similarly says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. He's speaking about the spirit of God here. And he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Okay, He's, he makes a connection here. There's there's a requirement on receiving the spirit of God, having the spirit of God come from God so that we might understand the things given to us by God. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's a way of saying to those who have received the spirit. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. So see the contrast here between or this requirement of having the spirit to really grasp this. I think that's a little can see, be seen a little bit in what Jesus is saying there. Unless the Spirit of God is transforming your wills and putting you, your will in conformity with God's will, and when that happens, you will be able to recognize the authoritative source of my teaching. If you don't, then you don't. 
And he makes this accusation on them that they don't know him. More on that here in a moment. Jesus goes to prove the the bondage that their wills are in sin and that their wills are not in alignment with God's will in the following verse, verse 19. Or a couple verses later, verse 19. It seems like it's a change of subject here a little bit, like Jesus gets kind of changing directions. But if he's establishing the fact that their wills are not in conformity with God's will, he challenges them on this in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Okay, there's three lines of thought here. Check. Moses um, is the one who gave the law of God, and to the people that Jesus is talking to, they considered Moses and the law of God as authoritative. So Jesus is now going right to the heart. He's putting his finger right on the button of like, okay, you want to talk about authoritative teaching? Let me start with what you consider to be authoritative teaching. The law of Moses. Has not Moses given you the law? That's the first line there. The second one is, is if Moses is your authority, then why do you break that law? Yet none of you keeps the law. What is he talking about here? That's the third line. You're seeking to kill me. The biggies, the Ten Commandments, right? What's number six? Thou shalt not murder. He's like, Moses gave, what do you consider authoritative? Oh, Moses and the law? Yes, okay, that's authoritative. But none of you keeps the law. You're wanting to kill me. You're wanting to kill an innocent man. Sixth Commandment? Ring a bell, anybody? Maybe I'm interpreting a little bit more feistiness into Jesus' words, but I think there's some feistiness there. So this is what Jesus is accusing them of. You're lawbreakers. Your wills are not in conformity with God's will. And that's why you're astonished at my teaching. To this, the crowd responds, interestingly, verse 20, you have a demon. They accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. And then they, and I think this is, I mean, I, I didn't know what the word gaslighting was up until a couple of years ago. And then I was like, oh, that's an interesting concept. Oh, I guess, uh, you know, I've known that that thing is a real thing. I never, never noticed the term for it. Uh, but this is gaslighting right here. Who's seeking to kill you? This was well known, right? They, they already do. As a matter of fact, look at a little bit later here in the next verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not the, the man that they were wanting to kill? I mean, it was well established here. John had already mentioned it in John chapter 5 after he'd healed the man by the pool, that they were like, they already sought to kill him and word was getting around. At the beginning of the feast, in chapter 7, he went up publicly, or, you know, not publicly, but privately, verse 10, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and were saying, where is he? Going from people to people. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen that guy, Jesus of Nazareth? So this is well-established fact that they were looking to, to kill Jesus. And they even mention it here later in this chapter. And so Jesus argues now back to them. And again, this is again, this authoritative teaching, the brilliance of what Jesus is teaching and his reasoning here. He, he argues from the lesser to greater in answer to this accusation. You have a demon and nobody's seeking to kill you. I'm just going to, we're going to gaslight you here. Jesus answered them, I did one work, 
and you all marvel at it. And by here, this is referencing that healing at the pool back at the beginning of chapter 6. I did one work, you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made the man's whole body well. Okay, so what he's saying here is the law gave instructions that you were to circumcise a child on the eighth day. Okay, but what if the child's born on a Friday? Well, then that eighth day would land on the Sabbath. Well, what, but on the Sabbath, we're not supposed to work. And so the reasoning was, well, it's, it's a command. And so the Lord must have known that it was going to land on an eighth day. I mean, unless we hold that baby in. Wait till sun, sundown. No, there were births on Friday. So, well, the Lord must have known there were going to be births on Friday. So this was going to happen. So we will allow circumcision, the sign of the covenant, the sign that this person is an Israelite and they're separated to God. We've restored this person in some way. And Jesus is going, well, if you guys circumcise on the Sabbath, right? The eighth day lands on the Sabbath. You do it. Even though you, you know there's a conflict there, why are you angry with me if I healed somebody on the Sabbath? Just brilliant. Jesus says, don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. And here he's showing that their judgment is wrong. More could be said, but Jesus' identity as Messiah is, is evidenced, is seen quite clearly in his authoritative teaching uh, here. But let's next look at Jesus' identity as Messiah is seen in his miraculous signs. It's evidenced in the mighty works that he has done to which everybody was well aware. Now this kind of skips around a, a little bit here, verses 25 through 36. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? Again, chapter 5, verse 15. Um, chapter 7, verse 21, just facts of them seeking to kill Jesus are, are abundant. And here he is, this, I, I, some, of the, some of the most fascinating lessons you can learn about Jesus are, are not found in the lips of Jesus in John. It's sometimes found on the lips of other people in John. Look at this. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Here they're walking around claiming he's, he's, a, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's not the Messiah, he's a false Messiah. And yet they're sitting here going, this is the man they're seeking to kill. And here they're sitting there interacting with him. They're, they have opportunity they have motive, and they have opportunity right here, and yet they do nothing. They're, they're reading between the lines here, looking at their behavior. Maybe these guys really do know that he's the Messiah. But it raises all sorts of questions about the Messiah, misconceptions, conceptions or misconceptions. We know that there is a man where this man comes from. We know where Jesus comes from. But when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Almost, it's almost kind of a question. Like, wait, don't we, we don't really know where the Messiah comes from, right? So Jesus proclaimed to them in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. 
He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. So they're having a conversation about, so where's the Messiah coming from? Is it coming from Galilee? Uh, is he coming from Bethlehem? As we see a little bit later, uh, they reference, well, doesn't the, the Messiah come from David's town in Bethlehem, which is, which is correct? And Jesus is going, you're having a conversation about where I come from according to my human nature. And Jesus is talking here in terms about his divine nature. He goes, where I really come from is from God. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, illustrating this, the obstinate blindness of these unbelievers. We've said many times, unbelief is more a heart issue than it is a head issue. Here's another very fascinating thing about Jesus that we get on the lips of other people in John, verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Again, think through the thinking here. Okay, you're saying he's not the Messiah and he's a fraud. How, how amazing will it be when the real guy shows up then? Because this is pretty good stuff, right? This is pretty good stuff. And you're telling me this is a fraud? And that he's not the real guy? Well, the, the real guy shows up. It's going to be pretty amazing. Notice another miracle here. This is the mighty works. This is in reference to the mighty works. But let me back up a little bit and let's look at this other miracle. And that is the sovereign power of Jesus over those who seek his life. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, in earlier in this chapter, when his answer to his brother is about going up to the feast, he says, my time has not yet come. And he's talking about the circumstances right now and the time for my coming uh, to going down to Jerusalem is not here. He uses a different word here, hour, and he uses it several times in John's gospel. And his hour not yet coming is a reference to his crucifixion, him going to the cross. So what's interesting here in verse 30 is that in the, despite their attempts to seek Jesus, to seize him and arrest him and to put him to death, no one did it. And here's why. Because his hour had not yet come. The reason why he was not captured by them is because he has the sovereign power over those who are wanting to take his life. They're not able to seize him because his, his power prohibits them from doing it. Which shows that when Jesus does go to the cross, he is eventually apprehended by them and he's put on trial and he is crucified. That only happens because it has happened according to his will and his plan. Jesus is in the garden when they come to get him. Jesus goes, you've done it. You've captured me. 
I've been invading you this whole time, and now you finally outwitted me. No, even here in this moment, as they're seeking, as the controversy is getting heightened, and they're seeking to, to take Jesus in, in anger and hatred in their heart, and suppressing the truth about who he is, they want to kill him, and Jesus goes, there's, there's more yet that needs to be done. He has sovereign power over them. That's another miraculous sign. Here's another miraculous sign. So here you have two miraculous signs. One, that if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, and then all of these miraculous signs that he'd been doing, it, it's hard to fathom them being outpaced by somebody else. And here's the other one. Jesus had sovereign power over those who would seek to capture him. Now, really quick, you see in 28 and 29, Jesus had answered where he comes from in answer to the, to the muttering about Jesus in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees and officers sent to arrest him. Jesus answers in verse 33 and 34. In 28 and 29, he was talking about where he comes from. In 33 through 34, he's talking about where he will go. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. Okay? Wait, where does the Christ come from? Jesus goes, well, where, where I come from, I come from him who sent me. And he's true. And you don't know him. And then Jesus says in 33, and I'm going to him who sent me. And where I'm going, you cannot come. 28 through 29, he talks about where he's coming from, and that is from God. In 33 to 34, he's talking about where he will go, and he's referring to going to God in his ascension after his crucifixion. And in both cases, there's an pronouncement against them in their unbelief. You do not know him, and where I'm going, you can't come. You don't know God, and you'll be cast from his presence. So Jesus' identity as, uh, as Messiah is seen in these miraculous events. And then lastly, lastly, let's look at Jesus' identity as Messiah um, was deeply debated by the people. The main idea here is seen in verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Now, real quickly, let me just address verses 37 through 39. And this division is, is based on these claims of 37 and 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and he says, I, uh, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me to drink. Whoever believes in him, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow waters, rivers of living water. This is it. He's talking here about the Spirit, as John says in verse 39, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in John chapter 14 and 16. He's offering this kind of like a little snippet in a preview here. So Spirit is a topic in verse 39. Water is also a topic, and we'll get to that when we talk a little bit more about this being part of the ceremony at the Feast of Booths. But it's the claim itself that he alone is the one who provides the absolute essential things for life. It's the water that we saw uh, in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. And so because of these claims, the exclusive claims of who he is, these extreme claims of exclusivity, 
that he and he alone is the one who offers this life. Then you have the division happening. And so here, let's get a summary of some of these. Notice in verse 12, chapter 7. Some said he's a good man. Also in verse 12, no, he's a deceiver. Also verse 47, he's a deceiver. What about verse 15? He's a great teacher. Same for verse 46. No one has ever spoke like this man. But on the other side, he says, no, he's demon possessed. Verse 20, he is a demon. Some said he, he's a grand miracle worker. Verse 31. If there's another guy who's going to perform amazing things, that's going to be a sight because this stuff is pretty good. But on the other hand, you had somebody who said, no, he's a Sabbath breaker. Chapter 5, verse 16, he's healing on the Sabbath. Or verse 21, as Jesus replied to them, I did one work and you marvel at it on the Sabbath. That's what you're accusing me of. Chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 40. Some said, he's, he's a prophet. Verse 41. No, he's the Messiah. And they debated about it as if the two couldn't be one. We find out that they are. But others said, no, he's a troublemaker. He needs to be arrested. Not only be arrested, he needs to be killed. So this is the division that Jesus causes, which makes sense when you think if he really is the Messiah, there's going to be some radical divisions over and debates and discussion about who he really is, because you're going to have some who their natures have been changed by God to recognize that he is, in fact, the Messiah, and some who in the hardness of their heart just simply reject it. They suppress the truth about who he is. So that's the real question, isn't it? That's the whole question of this whole gospel is who, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? What side are you on? Is he a good man with pure motives? Or is he a liar and a deceiver? Is he a great gifted teacher or is he demon possessed? Is he a miracle worker of a kind that has never been seen before? Or is he just a Sabbath breaker and a violator of God's law? Is he the Christ and the prophet? Or is he a troublemaker who must be arrested? That's really the answer. And it's interesting in verse 31, it says, And yet many of the people believed in him. So which one are you? Which one are you? This is the whole question of John's gospel. Jesus ends up getting put on trial, and that is the question that plagues. Uh, as Jesus is going to, from trial to trial, and who, who is this guy? Which one are you? May you be the ones that do in fact, believe in Jesus. 
because he is the one who has living water and eternal life. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you that in the person of Jesus Christ, the one mediator between you and us, that it is in him and him alone that we find salvation. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes, spiritually speaking, that, that you would give us the ability to see the spiritual things that you give us, as Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God, may it never be that for those of us who are called by your name, that we never drift into uh, to unbelief and doubt on who Jesus is. But that with fresh eyes we see Jesus indeed as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the anointed one of David. And that by believing in him, we have life in his name. We pray, God, that on that truth and the words that we have heard in your word, that you would sanctify us by your word. May our faith in Christ as the Messiah manifest itself in holiness of our lives, in obedience to him, and for the glory of your name. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can say, Amen. Friends, let's stand for our closing commission. And we'll have a, a doxology and a benediction today. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And may the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, whose divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Peace be with you. Thank you.